And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. In the covenant, we identify as non-creedal, meaning we don't adhere to a specific creed. But non-creedal doesn't mean we're without theology. The six covenant affirmations address the question, what does the covenant believe? Retired North Park Theological Seminary professor Klein Snodgrass joins us. Klein, we're so happy to have you with us today on Love the Cove. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about your life at North Park and how your covenant-ish. <laughs> uh, sure. And thank you for having me, first of all. Um, I knew virtually nothing about the covenant when they called me and asked me if I wanted an interview. Um, and I didn't think they were serious because I was only 29. and. One of my colleagues said, go, you'll learn from the interview. And uh, so I came somewhat on a lark and then was taken back to find out that they were serious because I knew I did not want to move back to Chicago. We had lived in Chicago for in the Chicago area for three years, and that was not us. And it was a very difficult decision to make, but in the end, uh, my wife Phyllis and I both felt like this is what God wanted for us, and that was in 1974, which I know is a previous millennium. Um, and uh, we came to North Park and were taken in by people just so graciously. Uh, and the covenant was quite different then than it is now, uh, because mostly then it was still very Swedish. And uh, now much, much less so. But people were so gracious and so supportive of me. And uh, I ended up being there 41 years in the seminary. And uh, I'll never forget when uh, I was being interviewed by the minister, the Board of Ministry for Permanent Call. And uh, we were talking, I said something like, I feel like for now that God has led me to North Park. And you can see the eyebrows go up and they said, what do you mean for now? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, you always have to be aware that you live open to God and what God might do in your life. And there were actually a couple of times when I thought God might be leading me away, but I think in those circumstances, God kept me from making a mistake. Uh, I always felt blessed to be teaching at North Park. People supported me in anything I wanted to do. Uh, They're extremely supportive, more than I think I would have experienced in any other institution. So it it was very good. And uh, for the first eight years I was at North Park, someone mistook me for a student. Because many of the students were older than I was. Uh, But it was all good. And uh, we were blessed by God to be able to do that. When we 
decided that we wanted to talk about covenant affirmations on the podcast, we were asking people who should speak into this conversation. And multiple people said that you are the go-to source, Klein. So (laughs) could you give us like a little overview of the affirmations first, kind of starting at the high level, like what are they and and what are their origins or how did they become part of the covenant? Okay. Uh, And of course, my doing so is a bit odd, isn't it? Because uh, when I came to North Park, uh, I was ordained as a Southern Baptist and still am, although for the past 25 years or so at least, I've had virtually nothing to do with Southern Baptist other than a few friends I met at conferences. Um, and uh, part of all that is the uh, support and the graciousness which, which, with which the covenant took me in. And they ended up allowing me to do things I shouldn't have done. Uh, I wrote uh, the first draft for the Statement on Women in Ministry. Um, I wrote a resource paper on divorce and remarriage. I was dean of faculty for five years. They shouldn't have let me do all that, (laughs) but they did. And uh, in the last number of years I've described myself, if you say, okay, what's your denominational affiliation? I've said uh, Southern Baptist in Covenant uh, because that's me. I, I am uh, both. My ordination is Southern Baptist and uh, I am a Baptist, but I'm Covenant. With regard to the affirmations and how they emerged, um, if I understand the history correctly, originally the uh, Affirmations were published in 1976 uh, by faculty members who had taken me in so graciously. And um, originally, there were only five covenant affirmations. In 2005, they added a sixth one, um, that one being the whole mission of the church to focus on diversity and uh, uh, ethnic inclusion. But the original five, I'm I'm sure that one of the reasons that they um, did the covenant affirmations was to say, to answer the question, what do you folks believe if you're a non-credal church? But non-credal does not mean without theology. Uh, It means that one does not adhere to a specific creed as uh, authoritative in ways that other creeds might not be. And, of course, the covenant uh, emphasizes various creedal formulations, especially the Apostles' Creed, which is said by people at ordination. And uh, But it's still important to say, as a non-creedal church, here's what's theologically significant to us and what drives us theologically. And it's crucial that we understand that. Um, We're not like on theology. Quite the opposite. We want to be strong on theology. We want to emphasize it. We want it to be articulated in as clear a way as possible. And so uh, the covenant ended up with those first five talking about the centrality of Scripture, which is the first I'll come back to it in a moment, but it's the one from which everything else comes. 
They emphasize the necessity of new birth. They emphasize the church as a family of faith and fellowship of believers. Uh, they emphasized the dependence on the Holy Spirit, and they emphasized freedom in Christ, which then later in 2005, the sixth one was added on the whole mission of the church. I have actually seen two different orders for the affirmations. And I would suggest that they redo the order now. Because the dependence on the Holy Spirit is too far down the list. In fact, in some ways, you could say that dependence on the Holy Spirit ought to come first, because the Holy Spirit is the source of the scriptures. But then how do you know that? It's just the scriptures that do it. So you're in the in and out between that. But you don't have any of those other things without the Holy Spirit. I mean, how can you talk about the necessity of new birth if you don't talk about the spirit who's causing the new birth? So uh, that's my quibble. Uh, and with dependence on the Holy Spirit, we're not just talking about, oh, okay, uh, I think I need the Holy Spirit in my life. No, it's the realization that uh, the Spirit always accompanies us and drives us and is the source of what we do, if we're doing it right. That's a good question. Uh, but you have to understand that the Holy Spirit there are two things I like to say about the Holy Spirit. One is the Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus in his absence. It comes from talking about the, uh, the paraclete, the comforter in the Gospel of John. Uh, he's the one when Jesus departs who comes to us to aid us in life. And the other thing, I like, and this goes back to talking about, okay, what's the Spirit of God in the Old Testament? The Spirit of God is the agent of God, doing God's work in the world. And if you will, it's the presence of God. So uh, I would want to emphasize as much as possible the, uh, the central role the Spirit has in all Christian thinking. Sometimes people end up thinking, well, the Spirit's an add-on. Spirit's the quiet person of the Trinity. Uh, no. Uh, Christianity is, in essence, about the Spirit. Because Jesus is only the Christ because the Spirit anointed him. And the church only exists because of Pentecost. Uh, so, and everything else that happens for Christians, they say, okay, the Spirit did. The Spirit brings conversion. So I, I want to emphasize Spirit as much as I know how. If I ever get a say, I would also like to say, yes, the Holy Spirit one should be moved up. <laughs> I concur. I concur. But going to what is the current first affirmation, um, as a New Testament scholar, could you help us unpack the language of centrality of the word of God? We use that word centrality, or sometimes we use authority to talk about scripture, but we don't say inerrancy. Why do we use that specific language in the covenant? Uh, uh, first of all, you back up and you say, uh, what were these uh, ancestors in the covenant doing when they started this denomination. And the thing they were trying to do was come together for a mission. And uh, so when they put out their rules for the covenant church, the first thing they did is say, okay, here's the name for the thing, the evangelical covenant church. And then the second one reads like this. This is the second thing in, the, in if you will, the charter for the church. The Evangelical Covenant Church confesses the Holy Scripture 
the Old and New Testament would be the Word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. So, uh, right from the beginning, they said, This is it. This is our, we're non cradle. Here's our confession. It's the scripture. And that's why the first one is and has to be the centrality of scripture because everything else flows from that. Uh, their actual statement, the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct, is uh, one open to misunderstanding by people, and two sometimes is a, a bit of a mystery. Several of us years ago tried to determine the origin of the statement, and we didn't see any other place where a, that exact statement appeared. No doubt it came from the Reformation sola scriptura emphasis, scripture only. Uh, and, but then only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. What does that mean? Well, uh, only is obvious enough. Nothing else functions on this level. Perfect. In what way? Wait a minute. There's a whole lot in scripture that is awful. It talks about violence and things that happen. And so you can't just understand that in some simplistic way. Not if you're going to deal with the whole of scripture. But what it's really trying to say is the only complete revelation that you need for revelation with God. Uh, you don't need something else in terms of your relation with God. Scripture's all you need. That was the point. And then with the word rule, which is a bit odd for us, what they are pointing to, and the church has used it in any number of ways over the years. I don't mean the covenant, I mean the history of the church. With rule, what they're really talking about is the gauge, the guide. Here's the thing by which you gauge everything else as to whether it is straight or not. And so uh, this was the statement for them. And you, if you look at covenant affirmations four times in a short little uh, description of covenant affirmations, they give you this statement. The only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And by conduct, of course, they mean your life. How are you going to know who you are, who God is, what you ought to do? The only place you're going to find out is Scripture. Not that other things aren't going to be helpful. Nobody operates only with Scripture. But that nothing else functions on the level that Scripture us, or as uh, many Reformation thinkers put it, Scripture is the norming norm. It is the thing that you know is true, and you put it down to say, okay, do these other things line up with it, or do they not? And if they don't, they're not for us. The norming norm. So I think that's what they were trying to get at. Uh, why does the covenant not use the word inerrancy? Uh, well, I think there might be any number of reasons. Uh, part of it is inerrancy is not a word that is in common parlance. Where else do you see it? And uh, so it's just in this one little category. You say, okay, inerrant. And you could say, well, nothing else is inerrant but scripture. Right. But it's also open to misunderstanding because people think, okay, then. Uh, it means there's no error of any kind. And they forget about 
tribal errors copying scripture, not even aware of that. And anybody who is a scholar and uses the term inerrancy, they know they don't mean that. And they also know there are all kinds of problems in scripture where you say, okay, now, how do you put this with this and make it work? And much of that comes back to understanding the nature of what scripture is. And what I've been doing for years is telling people it's not easy to be biblical. If you think it is, you got the wrong text or you haven't been reading it. And you have to understand the nature of scripture, what it's trying to do. I uh, probably from about my second year at North Park, uh, tried to, de- to discern language that I could use for myself to talk about scripture. And I uh, use the expression, scripture is the source, the pattern, and the power of truth. It's the source of truth because it tells you truth things. It's the pattern of truth because it shows you what truth looks like and what untruth looks like. And it's the power of truth because it's the place where we encounter God in the spirit. Or as the early covenanters put it, Scripture is an altar where we meet God. Yeah, it doesn't. But if you look at that thing about the pattern of truth, and you say, oh, okay, here, it also shows us the, uh, what untruth looks like. People just assume, okay, all the Scripture is there to tell you what you ought to do. No, it's not. Some of it is there to tell you what you ought not do. And you read Judges and you got to weep. You read the history of Israel in many places, you got to weep. But the text wasn't there saying, hey, you ought to be like this. It's there saying, good night, look at this history. It's because people weren't walking with God. And so we need a great deal better sensitivity with the text. Be able to, if you will, touch the text and know what it is doing. Um, if I can, at this point, uh, pull in another covenant document, uh, the resource paper on how the covenant reads scripture. And uh, it has, I think, what is it, uh, five things. Uh, It says, we read according to certain guidelines. We read faithfully. We read communally. We read rigorously. We read charitably. We read holistically, with essential commitments to grace, transformation, and mission. That's the covenant right there. The committed to grace, transformation, and mission. Well, you can see at least two and a half of the affirmations in those last three words. Uh, but the other part, to read the scripture faithfully, uh, you know, you're not just saying, okay, I believe in scripture and I'm off and I'll see you later. You're reading the scripture faithfully, and you're reading it communally. You don't read it by yourself. You don't have enough intelligence. Nobody does. You don't have enough experience, enough pre-understanding is the technical word, uh, and nobody does. You don't have enough framework and background to read it by yourself. And yes, we'll take all the help that scholars can give us, but scholars need help from other scholars and from lay people. So we read communally. 
And it's only as we sit together and listen to each other. And we say, okay, now I understand. We read rigorously because uh, that means we have to read self-aware of who we are reading. Because we bring baggage to the text that needs to be urged. Uh, and we need to read the text with some awareness that this is, the way I put it, this text is just not to us, even if it is for us and about us in the sense that it mirrors life. And so uh, we read rigorously to understand Scripture in its own context. What's the intent of the text? And for years I've been telling people, stop talking about the meaning of the text, because meaning is an ambiguous word. Start talking about the function of the text. What's the text trying to do? What's God communicating to his people and trying to persuade them with regard to a particular issue? So what's the intent? That's the part of reading the text uh, rigorously. We read holistically. We don't just read the text line. We read the whole thing, even the parts that may us grieve. And we try to see the trajectory of Scripture, because there is one. They don't give you the Trinity in, in Genesis. Um, and the, the trajectory is also involved in the history of the church. We figure things out and go, oh, my goodness, why didn't I see that earlier? Uh, but we, then we also read uh, in such a way that we do not violate the text. If you're reading holistically, you're trying to hold the text and its tensions together. I mean, I, I wrote a book a number of years ago, uh, Between Two Truths, because I found myself, everything I was dealing with, I was dealing with. Two ends of a spectrum. And how do you deal with those tensions, say, between uh, the humanity and divinity of Christ, the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity, or whatever? And it's not that you say, okay, I'll pick these texts and jettison those. Uh, you know, we hold the texts together. and But then you also have to say, reading rigorously means, wait a minute, there are places where there's no tension. And there... You just go with what the scripture says. You know, you don't try to escape somewhere. And you take, for example, the issue of women in ministry. There's all kinds of tension in the text about women in ministry. And if you understand the text rigorously in its context, I don't think there's any question that uh, it took us way too long to understand what the early church was doing. Because we ended up with a, in my view, we ended up with a view of office in the church that the early church did not have. So how do you do leadership and authority and do not do it just the way the secular world does? So those are the kinds of things. And the commitment to grace, transformation, and mission. Right on. I'm glad you talked about, uh, I remember sitting in class with you, Klein, and, and I remember that phrase, it's not written for you. It's not written. <laughs> I should probably get it right, right? It's not written to you, it's written for you, right? I remember that was that was eye-opening for me who had grown up reading scripture my whole life to understand it. Uh, we, we assume it's our uh, daily calendar book. Yeah. The Spirit may do that on a particular day, 
us to expect that that's what it is. That's not its nature. Yeah. And you're not the only one. I'll never forget uh, a student who uh, had some resistance to that idea. That the scripture's not to her. And uh, I made a comment, you know, I'll keep it vague to protect the innocent. Uh, I made a comment to her that clearly she just assumed it was not something directly applied to her. And I'll never forget, there was a big tear that rolled down her face. Uh, she has been faithful and she's doing very well. <laughs> but no, it's not to me. I, uh, years ago, there was a peanut script in which I think uh, Linus says to Charlie Brown, maybe the reverse. When I read the New Testament, I'm all, I always feel like I'm reading someone else's mail. You are. But you can learn from it. So we read rigorously, doing justice to the nature of the text. And the text itself will tell you what it is. You don't have to have another book to do that. You just read sensitively. Are there other distinguishing marks in the affirmations that we should highlight today that make the covenant unique or distinct from other bodies of believers? In some ways, I think there are any number of groups who would say, hey, those affirmations are great. I mean, who doesn't want to talk about freedom in Christ? The necessity of conversion, the whole mission of the church, you know, my, my goodness. So I don't think the covenant's unique in emphasizing these factors, and it shouldn't be. Uh, they may be a bit more focused in some of these, and some of them they've not particularly articulated well. Uh, let me uh, jump on two things. Uh, the necessity of new birth. Well, I know why that language is used, and I'm happy with it, but it is summary language because the language of birth describing the Christian faith, is not all that common in the New Testament. Uh, you've got, what, six occurrences, I think, in the Gospel of John, one in chapter one, the other's five in chapter three. And that's that. Uh, you have 10 in First John. Uh, and those years, just a simple verb to be born. There are about six other passages, I think, that use some compound of that word in the rest of the New Testament. So if you say, well, uh, have we overemphasized something that's not central? Uh, not at all. We just recognize that it is language for conversion and transformation, which is one of the things the covenant emphasizes in its reading. and. Uh, my goodness, that's one of the things we want to emphasize is the reason we're doing this. I mean, people need transformation. They need conversion. I, one of my favorite quotations uh, comes from Miroslav Volf. He says something like, uh, Paul views uh, humanity as having a wrongly centered self that needs to be decentered by being nailed to the cross. Yeah, uh, humanity has a wrongly centered self, and it needs work. And the Holy Spirit in this gospel 
provide the work of transformation. And we want to emphasize that as much as we know I have, because whatever language you use, whether it is uh, new birth, new creation, transformation, reconciliation, whatever, yeah, that's what we're talking about. And the other thing that needs to be said there is too often the church views conversion as an event when it is a process. Uh, yeah, well, there is a beginning. Somebody decides at a moment or over a period of time, okay, I'm going to follow this Jesus. And the Holy Spirit does the transforming work. But that's a beginning. And that transforming work is to go on continually in the renewing of the mind. So uh, I think we need to emphasize that conversion is a process way more than we do. Uh, and then um, freedom. Yeah, I would want to say uh, with regard to freedom, we've often not thought deeply enough about freedom. And I thought, my goodness, um, I think again from my early days in the government, I felt like we need to talk about freedom, but we need to talk about responsible freedom. And uh, for a long time, uh, I remember having the conversation with covenant presidents and leaders to say, hey, covenant talks about freedom, but it doesn't talk about responsibility. So what's it mean to be free? And too often people say, well, it just means I'm free. I can do what I want. No, it doesn't. And it talks about the affirmation. It's about the reality of freedom in Christ. You don't have freedom anywhere else. There's no such thing as absolute freedom. You're always bound by the context that you choose. And the uh, with regard to um, freedom, uh, if you're going to say it's freedom in Christ, what you're saying is here's a freedom that is determined by who Christ is. It's only in conformity with his nature that you can talk about freedom. And the freedom uh, that is primarily in focus, especially with Paul, is freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the law, freedom from powers that defeat life and keep you from being who you're supposed to be. And I would want to, uh, I would want to emphasize uh, Galatians 5.1. You know, if you're going to talk about what Christianity is about, also, for freedom, Christ freed you. My goodness, you know, and you look, and there's this whole trajectory of focus on freedom uh, in Scripture. It's always been about freedom, and especially so in Christ. You know, all of a sudden here, no, you don't have to sin. No. Also, sin will not lord it over you. That's the gospel. That's good stuff. And then you go on and, and see what this freedom means in terms of, of uh, free to live the way God wants you to. It does not mean that you always are going to agree with other people in their freedom. Paul talks about this in Romans 14 and 15, talking about freedom uh, really with regard to what I would say were non-essential factors. Uh, what kind of food you're going to eat? 
you know, you don't have to agree on that. Hey, go for it. Do what you want. Uh, but when it becomes something that is sinful, uh, if your freedom becomes something you have to prove or picks you into an, ex- an excess that you shouldn't have or crosses boundaries that are not permitted for Christians, then it's not freedom anymore. It's slavery. And uh, it's very interesting how Paul talks about freedom and slavery in, uh, in his letters. He talks about uh, being a slave to righteousness. That's a good slavery. They're being free from sin. And uh, that's a freedom people need. Uh, so in terms of the uh, affirmations, you know, we can talk a long time about the rest of them. Uh, the covenant has, I think, been pretty good about that whole mission of the church thing, where they want to do evangelism, but they're still going to help people. And I think of... Uh, some of my former students are missionaries of various places who are models doing what they should be doing. You know, rejoice is great. And the ethnic inclusion, uh, you know, uh, there are boundaries that Christians will not cross and boundaries that Christians will not allow. And if you are in Christ, you're one with the other people in Christ, like it or not. So you might as well like it. Uh, and live it. You know, we embrace each other because there is this common bond in the family of faith, that's what the church is, bound to each other to live together, to help each other and work. COVID's made it hard. I uh, am concerned. And hopefully we'll come out on the other side and know how to do things well and uh, not have lost things that we should not have lost. I'm wondering, um, especially around affirmations, what invitations or word do you sense that God has for the covenant in living into the affirmations today? That's a hard question because, um, in effect, you're saying, what do I wish God would say to the covenant? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I want to hear that answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not just the covenant. I think it's to all of us who profess Christ. I uh, have been reading Romans a lot lately. And you look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Which is, you know, which is your reasonable service. Uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be continually transformed. That's one of those texts that talks about conversion as a process. But that thing, do not be conformed to this world. Um, often we look at the church and, you know, these, these people go to church on Sunday morning, but are their lives different? Uh, are they really taking their pattern from Scripture or from the secular society? And so I think I'd want to say, uh, can we conform to this world? Um, 
There's another thing I have to say because uh, I'm eating up with it. <laughs> I, uh, that, that phrase, reality, freedom in Christ, it's the in Christ thing. When people take seriously that their existence is housed in Christ and determined by him, things are different. Uh, and the language that is very popular among Pauline scholars, but is increasingly, I think, starting to have an impact, is the word participation. Um, I have a book that just came out a bit ago uh, on participation, the gospel of participation. And when you realize that you're participating in life with Christ, it's different. So I would, I would say, if I, if I see any need, whether it's, it is what God is saying, the churches are already hearing it, and I've been deaf, I don't know. But uh, if you ask me what do I think churches need to hear, I would say, if we conform to this world, we continually transform to your Lord. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Thank you, friends, for listening to this episode of the Love the Cub podcast. And if you'd like to share your story of when you became covenant, please send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye now. Bye.